Next complete summary at 11. In just a moment, Gene Shepard from the Village Limelight. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Keeping pace with the flow of traffic is one way to cut your chances of being involved in a Labor Day weekend accident. Adjust your speeds to local conditions. Remember that both speedsters and slowpokes cause accidents. So your New York State Police say to be safe, keep pace, and drive carefully at all times. This is WORAM and WORFM, your RKO General Station in New York. Now, try your lines again, gang. Try your lines. Let's hear it. Come on. Excelsior. That's right. Work it out. Take care of it. Oh, boy. And, and, and before you belt that fat head out, I, because this is a method world we're living in, very few people got any scripts. Have you ever had the feeling, by the way, that you're living in a world that is scripted and everybody else knows the cues and you're trying to ad-lib your way through a, through a fantastic mass of cheesecloth and you're pretending, you know, you buy great suits, get yourself a jazzy shirt, all the time you're walking around and you can't tell the cues that suddenly guys in your neighborhood rise to become David Merrick. How would you like to have lived next to David Merrick when you were a kid and you're still working in the lawnmower plant in Cleveland? Boy, you have to explain a lot in this life to yourself. Yes. All right, gang, all set now? You want to tell Ohio what to do? You want to let them know in Wisconsin what we here in gentle Greenwich Village think of them? Here, where life is lived to the fullest, where existence is a sweet cake of Fleischmann's yeast, where you nibble quietly at the edge of the compost heap of existence, growing like a veritable, soft, sensitive geranium amid the rotten, crummy cactus of life. Yes, we are here tonight where beauty grows of its own accord, in Greenwich Village, in the limelight, just off 14th Street down on 7th Avenue South, where the sound at the proper moment of the symbolic horn is heard that rocks Wisconsin to its very foundation. Oh! <laughs> yes, they're whistling along the turnpike tonight. Saturday is being celebrated in its primitive little way everywhere. Guys are hoping that it will work out, knowing full well that if it does, what then? <laughs> That's always a question, man, isn't it? <laughs> yes, what then? <laughs> yes, indeed. And then all of a sudden, out of the darkness, comes that cry, Excelsior, you fat hey! Fantastic. Come on, let's go, let's go. Let's go, let's let them know it. Hey, hey. <laughs> all right, hold on, gang. <laughs> After all, it is Labor Day, and we are about to celebrate a great American ritual. I mean, you know, Labor Day. And here I am surrounded by a sea of obvious laboring people. <laughs> all ready to celebrate 
something which means very little to them. The bricklayers are off laying bricks, I can tell you that. They're not celebrating. We are also about to celebrate something else. This week, I received in the mail a notification that starting Monday is American Art Appreciation Week. Now, what are you going to do about it, friends? You're going to walk around and think about uh, oh, the Mona Lisa something on Tuesday, you know? What are you going to do? How are you going to celebrate it? And the object of this is to celebrate American art itself. It says we must celebrate American art and American artists. And I brought here something tonight <laughs> that illustrates American art at its most dynamic. <laughs> now, in case you can't see what this is, this is a polyethylene Smokey the Bear. Now, now, Smokey, in this case, has, an, has a top that comes off. And being that he's an American bear, he fills up with ketchup. <laughs> and then you put it back on and you squeeze Smokey all the while preventing forest fires. <laughs> now, now I, submit for, <laughs> I submit for those of you who, who uh, wonder why this is brought in here, that a thousand years, I don't know whether you know anything about plastic, but it does not get rusty. <laughs> plastic is hard to get rid of, I can tell you, Dad. And this thing is likely to last a thousand years. That if I were to take this out back of the limelight tonight and bury it, it would lay there for 1,500 years. And then one day in the far-flung future, an archaeologist would come. He's digging there, you know. He's trying to figure out what kind of men the 20th century men were, you know. And he would... He'd carry it under the light. He'd say, it looks like some kind of an animal. A bear, I believe. Must be a religious object. <laughs> It's uh, animal fetishism, I believe, yes. Just the top comes off. I see that. What is that, sir? Would you think they'll have ketchup 1,500 years from now? Oh, no. He'll smell it. It's red. This must be blood. Obviously, some sort of a sacrificial thing must have been connected with human sacrifice of some kind. Now, let's see how this thing... It squirts out! He says, ah, yes, the flowing out of blood. The human sacrifice, the animal worship, and the bear. And slowly but surely, they would begin to piece together the story of our time. Well, friends, what do you think we ought to do? Do you think we ought to burn it all before we go? Because we know how it is, you know. And, and the sad fact of it is, guys are going to walk around they're going to say, you know, that must have been a fantastic time. Have you ever noticed that no matter what time of history that people talk about, they talk about it as having been a good time? Almost every man here thinks that if he were born during the days of knighthood, he could see himself wearing a halberd, a big helmet. Those guys were great. Well, here we are. 
5,000 years from now, they're going to say we were great. And we are. With our Smokey the Bears, <laughs> our Howard Johnsons. How are we going to explain that? There's a lot of things. And in fact, the education of becoming a person is one of the most subtle of all things. And tonight, somebody on the way in, I was coming in, somebody says, Shepard, why do you tell army stories? Well, one of the reasons I tell army stories is that this is where it's all laid bare. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, you, don't, you have no idea how much you learn about just what man is by reading about and being in and participating in the world of the army. And I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you a story that I don't know whether I should tell this story or not because there's women and children in the crowd here tonight. <laughs> but, but I don't know whether I should tell this story or not because it's one of the kind of stories that never appears in books by James Jones or Norman Mailer, you know. I mean, you know, the real army man. You know? it, it, just, it just doesn't appear in that. And I want to tell you a very strange feeling that all army men, every guy who's ever been in the army, the navy, or the marines, I'm going to tell a story that he's never told his chick. I know this because it's one of those strange, crazy little moments of revelation. Now, you've got to picture how we all live as civilians. You know how you live. There's certain things you do. You know, you wear a coat. You wear a suit. You know, you wear shoes. You walk around. You eat three times a day. There's a whole mystique of being in what you call normal life. And you don't recognize it as that. Now, all of a sudden, you're in the induction center. And there I am, I'm with 6,000 guys, and we're suddenly there in a, in a fantastic building, giant building, and we're in what they call, this, this is the place where you're classified. This is where your whole life is decided before you even know it's being decided. Does this happen to you in civilian life? Does somebody come along when you're three and take your fingerprints, pull your ear, and take a little shot of your blood and say, oh, this guy's going to work in a pole line. Go. Well, we're all sitting there, and there's this officer up there, and he says, Men, you're in the Army of the United States. We're all sitting there dressed in our regular clothes, you know, short sleeves, sports shirts. We're not even dressed in Army clothes yet. He says, You're now in a classification center, and the first thing we're going to do is see whether or not any of you guys have got a good ear for code. You ever hear of code, radio code? I'm beaming, you know. I'm a ham down there. I says, oh, but I'm right back in my life, you know, little realizing I was sealing my existence for a thousand years. The first thing you learn in the Army, you don't know nothing about nothing. You can't type. You hit things like that. You know, they ask you if you type. You say, what? What type? Type? What do you mean? He says, here, this typewriter. He says, what do you do? You hit it. You know, you don't know anything. But, of course, when you're first there, because we come out of school, where the whole object in school is to show them how much you know. You know, immediately there's a thousand guys waving there. Yeah, I know code, Sergeant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten minutes later, they're in Sicily, you know, <laughs> with a chunk of lead behind their ear, you know, that quick. So you don't know this. Well, anyway, I, I'm, I go through this whole scene the first day, and boy, it's really scary. You know, they're giving you tests and code and one thing or another, and nobody really talks to anybody because immediately it works out in life as it does in the Army. There's always... 17 guys out of 100 who are the chutzpah artists. These guys know the whole scene already. You know, already they're up there talking to the, the officer. You know, they're wearing, hey, and he smiles. 
And he goes back and sits down. He says, how does he know? I mean, this guy came on the bus with me. What does he know? You begin to feel already the whole army's receding. You're going to be a private for the rest of your life. And you can see sergeant stripes on guys that are sitting there in bond suits, you know. Well, it's beginning to develop. And that night, we go to the barracks. We're sitting in the barracks for the first night. Now, you've got to picture this. this. This is never shown in any movie. I've never seen this. And there are 75 guys sitting on the bunks on the ground floor, and there's a whole crowd on the, on the top floor, and they're all just sitting. The sergeant has says, Stay in the barracks until you hear the whistle blow. We're all just sitting there with our ties. It's very embarrassing. You know, somehow a uniform is necessary to take that kind of junk, you know? We're just sitting there, you know, your, your coat is suddenly very striped. Your, your jacket is suddenly extremely blue. We're all sitting there. And all of a sudden, a guy gets up down at the end, and he walks down to the duty corporal, and he says, where's the John? <laughs> well, I mean, this is something that had occurred to us, you see. We never put it into words, you know, because at home, you know, somehow there's always, you know, it's, you know what I mean, it's doors and stuff. So he says, where's the John? He goes, what do you mean, the latrine? He hollers out loud, you know. There's none of this, none of this whispering back. He says, you mean the latrine? The guy says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of, all of a sudden, he feels like a little kid in third grade racing. <laughs> Did they have that in your school? You had two fingers and one finger, you know? <laughs> so, why did Miss Shields have to know, you know? What was she up to, you know? <laughs> so, so you, you all of a sudden feel this, you know, and, and he says, he says, uh, he says, it's a latrine. He says, down the end of the company street. I says, oh, oh, thank you, Sergeant. Can I go? I said, yeah, what do you mean? Of course. And the guy goes out, you know, he goes down the street, he's looking around. And we're all waiting. See how it works out, you know. <laughs> and about ten minutes later, he comes back with the strangest look on his face you ever saw in your life. He comes back, you know, with this, this real sheepish look. He sits down, and you can see he's still got to go. <laughs> he sort of sits there. Like, <laughs> He's sitting like this. <laughs> and one by one, each one of us put down there, and we discover why he came back like that. There ain't nothing in civilian life that even parallels it. Here's what they, they've got down there at the end of the company street. They've got a building as long as this, see? <laughs> and lining both walls are these uh, mechanical contrivances. You know the thing that your mother used to, you know that thing, you know what I'm talking Here it is, you see, all these Johns, okay. They're lining the walls, see, and facing each other. And there ain't no walls. Well, I'm just asking you, can you imagine? You have come out of Hammond, Indiana, you know, or Elyria, Ohio, or someplace, you know. And your idea of being real racy was to write something on the wall in school, you know, and John... 
You know? Have you ever wanted to catch a guy writing something on the wall? But so, so this is the whole, and all of a sudden, here is this, it's, you have no idea how basic it is. And of course, the first thing you do is say, well, I'll tell you what, you know, you start figuring. Man always plots. He, he never gives in right away. He adapts eventually, but never without a fight. And so you come back to the barracks and you say to yourself, well, I don't really have to go. Uh, I'll, uh, I'm going into town tonight. <clears throat> I think uh, I'll go to the Bluebird Inn tonight and have a beer. And the sergeant says, no passes tonight, guys. You see, the whole barracks got green. You know, they're all sitting there. Everybody's at the same, and nobody says anything to anybody else about it. You know, there's no, never any talk, because at this point, nobody even uses the, the final. Of course, eventually in the Army, there's only one word that's used to describe all situations. You'll have to tell her this on the way home when you get out. But at that point, we don't know that. We just talk like human beings. We say things like, it is raining out, Sergeant. And he goes, bah! He uses the words. Well... I'm telling you, you, you see this green come over, you see, and everybody is plotting. I'll wait till 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, 3 o'clock dawns, and you see these shadowy figures. Thousands of them coming from all of them. Well, I'll tell you, it takes, this, this, this lasts for roughly a week. And after that, you'd be surprised how adaptable the human creature is. You have no idea. <laughs> and after that, this building down at the end of the street is kind of, it's the place, well, it's the only truly sociable place. <laughs> you know what I mean, man? <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> and they sit down there, and the whole war is fought out in there, you know. <laughs> And somebody way down at the other end will say something. Hey, did you hear what General Smathers is getting transferred down to the Second Army Corps? And then way down at the other end, somebody will say, Blah! <laughs> that one Army word that says, Get it out of your skull. They'd never transfer old iron. You know, that's, I almost said what they really called him. <laughs> and so back and forth and back and forth it goes. And sitting next to it, now, I'm the reason I'm telling you this is because only men, people who have been this through this kind of experience, this kind of truly basic, honest experience of the human animal, begin to appreciate some of the subtleties of mankind himself. And so the other day, I'm sitting in the Four Seasons. I'm sitting down there. You know the Four Seasons, any of you? <laughs> he does, huh? That's why he's eating in the village these days. <laughs> I'll tell you, man. And, and, and I'm sitting there in the Four Seasons, very official-looking place. And there's there's waiters that have got that have got these sideburns. You know the kind of sideburns that C. Aubrey Smith had in the movies, that look like a British general that come all the way down. You know, and they walk with the stiff, that beautiful carriage of men who are diplomats, who are just you know doing a little moonlighting down here at the Four Seasons. And all around me, have you ever been in places where the beautiful people congregate? I'm talking about the people you read about in columns and that. These tall, thin ladies, these bronzed men, 
the guys that wear sunglasses, even when they're asleep, you know, this crowd. And they come in, and they're all silk and beautiful, and they, they know how to order, and, they, and they're so familiar. They talk to the waiter in French or Yugoslavian or something. And they all know each other. It's a funny, strange thing of all, everybody being in, you know, knowing. And it's, it's a kind of world. And the, and the little fountains are sprinkling down there. And you're completely cut off from the rest of the world. You know, like the cigar butts on 6th Avenue. That's all gone. Like, and you're here. Well, I have been brought there by two people. First time I've been here. I'm sitting. I'm wearing my suit. And... I'm being very official. You know, I've got my beard. You know, one thing about a beard, you can either be, believe me, when you wear a beard, you're either considered a rotten, beatnik bum or a guy that owns a Mercedes. <laughs> you know, you're one or the other, you see, and I'm playing my Mercedes side there. You know. <laughs> sitting there like this, you know, like I've just climbed the Matterhorn. That kind of thing. I'm looking a little bronze. Spit, you know, once in a while. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, you learn that. You see, a bearded man can get away with a lot of stuff because they think, geez, he's been through hell. You know? <laughs> There's a guy with a beard. He knows. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you, if you play it that way, you see, if you really do, you can sit there, you know, like that. You know, you, sit, you look like a tank commander or something. You just come back. And I'm sitting there like this, and they're bringing in the little condiments. They're bringing in the, the, the black olives and all this stuff. The guy stands up in front of me, and he takes this big, beautiful silver pitcher, just four seasons out, and he starts to pour it in. He's pouring it in, and he's pouring it in and in. He's pouring water in. You see, he's got this tall glass, and it's making this funny noise. And all of a sudden, a familiar feeling hits me. <laughs> you know, that works, friends. That, uh, <laughs> sure does. <laughs> And, and I'm sitting there, and, 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 and here I'm with these official people, the guy with the ribbon across the, the chest, you know, and there, the waiter walks away with the silver thing. And all of a sudden, I am back in Company K. You can't go and ask the ambassador, you know, I, excuse me. I, I, <laughs> you know, what do you do? You know? And I'm sitting there. And incidentally, these dinners there go on for 27 choruses. And then they follow it with brandy. And they keep pouring water all the time. <laughs> Steadily. Oh, wow, that fantastic torture. <laughs> oh, it's, it's fantastic. After, after about 20 minutes of this, you know, I'm, my eyeballs are bugging. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to say, just guts will do it. I can control guts. Yes, sir. You know, you know that, that's, that thing that, where you say to yourself, I am bigger than this. I am a person with a will. Man can rise above himself. <laughs> and you don't hear anything. After a while, your ears begin to ring, you know. <laughs> You're beginning to concentrate on one thing, you know. And they'll say to you, Robert, you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, very, that's very true. Uh, and all the while, there's a little voice in you screaming, Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> well... They don't even have one at the Four Seasons. Huh? <laughs> what you have suspected about those people all the time is true. <laughs> oh, it's a very terrible show. I'm glad all the bosses are out of town. They're not hearing it. Well, I'll tell you what I did. You know, it's funny. A man is very adaptable, like I said. I'm sitting there, and it's about 25 minutes go by, and I'm sweating. Oh, 
boy, you sweat and your beard is itching, you know, and everything. You'd be surprised how your beard starts to itch at the wrong time. That's terribly off. And all of a sudden, I said, i got to go. So I, I leap up. You know. <laughs> so, uh, very quickly, I say, excuse me, I have to make a phone call. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> I go... I go tearing out into the hall, you know, you should have seen me. I'm down the stairs, I'm out on the street, <laughs> I don't take any chance. I cut over to Lexington, turn left, and I go into this rotten little bar I know. <laughs> I come running in there, I peek! <laughs> and you know... Two days later, I see Pete, and he says, listen, he says, 75 guys an hour come through here. He says, it's the overflow from the four seasons. <laughs> so, you know, you know what? When, you, when you've lived in this kind of uh, reality, literally, you know something about man that the people who have never been able to and have been lucky, you know, they've never escaped it, they can have this kind of cellophane thing around them. Well, the army is full of things like that. Now, I'm going to tell you another scene that was a wild scene. This is directed to the guy with the beard in the corner there. I've got one so we can talk together, you know. <laughs> that, that happened to me in the army, and it was, it was totally surrealistic. Now, it's the kind of thing you know could not happen in civilian life. And because it did happen in the army, you know, you have a tendency to say, well, that's, you know, that's one of those nutty things. That's the army, you know, it's just nutty. But no, it's the real way people are. The army does not put restrictions on people. It takes them off. Literally. Oh, I'm telling you, there's a lot of guys that have got a lot of stuff that they have never told their chicks about what they did in the army. I'm telling you this. And so about four or five weeks after I'm in the army, I have been shipped to this camp, a barracks. Now... What do you think a barracks is like? Most people have never been in a barracks. I guess they think it's like camp, you know, <laughs> or like the Catskills or something. You know? <laughs> you know, a lot of guys sleeping together, so it's just kind of fun. You're all camping, you having fun there. Well, the barracks is something else again, I'll tell you, man. Here's this building, you see. It's two stories. It's a traditional army barracks. At the end of each floor, there's a butt can. Big can hanging there. It's, it's a can that was used for pineapple juice hanging there. The end of each one. And all these bunks back and forth. It's our first taste of true barracks life. We, we've gone through the reception center. We've gone through all these things. Now we're soldiers, you see. We've got suits and stuff. And we're beginning to act like soldiers traditionally have acted. Have you ever read the stories out of the, out of the Iliad? Have you ever read stories of the, of the Greek and the, the Roman soldiers? The first thing they do when they put on a suit and they come into town? Oh, man. I'll tell you. A soldier is a different breed of cat. He's the same guy. And so we're all sitting in the barracks one night. It's about ten minutes past five. I'm, I, I've never told this story on the air. Because, well, when you hear it, maybe you'll know why. <laughs> Very strange story. We're all sitting there, see, and this is old chef, you know, the same guy. This is me, you know. I'm, I'm not different. I'm just sitting there, see. I'm looking at a scene over. We are now in Class B uniform. This is the most anonymous of uniforms. Class B is the uniform of the wool shirt 
you know, the OD shirt, the OD pants, the web belt, and the hat with the tie tucked in. We have just stood retreat. And the sergeant says, tonight, in 15 minutes, we're going to have a formation. We're going to have a GI party. A GI party. Any of you know what a GI party is? Well, you're going to know now, tonight. He grins. And so we're waiting for the GI party. You see, we're sitting like this. Not one of us knows the guy next to him. That is very important. That's a very good feeling, by the way. Everyone thinks automatically you'd be lonely. No, on the contrary, for the first time, you know, you can do anything. You can say anything. You can be anything. You'd be surprised at how many polo players were here, you know. <laughs> Guys that were famous stunt pilots down there. All of a sudden, you ask him why he's a PFC, you know, on a signal. He's like, well, I don't want to mess around with an officer. So the world is beginning to ferment for us. See, so we're sitting like this. And it's in the shadow of the Ozarks. The hills are reaching up there off to the darkness. And it's one of those companies, every company you're in, you know, we're all reading about the South now. I have never been in a company in the Army that wasn't composed of 75% guys that said, Hey, you, come over here, you. You never had any idea how many Southern accents there were. Hey, man, hey, man, they got cornbread tonight for dumber. Hey, come on, boy, let's go down and get some supper down to PX. We're going to get ourselves... Hey, come on, with. we're going to get ourselves some Milky Ways. <laughs> go get ourselves some Coke and Milky Ways. Have ourselves a real ball down there. Well, of course, I'm sitting there part of this, and I, I can speak the dialect, you know, so I'm working the scene. I say, okay, man, I'll be with you. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, I didn't live in the Indiana swamps for nothing, see? So we're sitting there, all, all of us are sitting there. And down at the end of the barracks, mark you well, is a guy who had ridden in the troop train with us all the way from Fort Sherrod. He was a little round guy. He was older than we were. We were all about 17, 18, 19. This guy was probably 25 or so, something like that, you know. And he was one of those indeterminate ages. Little round man, and he parted his hair in the middle. And he had, he had what they used to call in Hestel, Indiana, a cookie duster. You know, a little mustache. And it was one of those snotty little mustaches. You know? And he was, he was the kind of guy who was always making those little niggling comments, you know, little complaints. He just said, when are they going to do something about this? You know, that kind of stuff. He's kind of a little, he had the soul of an insurance man, you know? You know what This little guy sitting there. And, and yet, on the other hand, he was very harmless. He never did anything, never, never, never argued, always did his stuff. But he was different. He had a mustache. That's the only difference I could see. Here he is, sitting like this. And all the rest of us are like this. <laughs> I don't know whether chicks know this, but men have a way of sitting that says, I'm here. You know? I'm really here and I'm part of the seat. So we're sitting like this. The whistle blows. Everybody gets up and stands. Out there in that long line in the company street. The sergeant, the duty sergeant, walks back and forth. He's from Nashville. He's now look. You're here to learn how to be a soldier. This is the toughest outfit in the whole Signal Corps. 
You guys are combat singlemen. You know what that means? Man, you're going to find out. We're yeah. All of a sudden, yeah, yeah, you know, I know. We're afraid. And yet, all the while, there's a certain, you know, that, that, that nice, lithe animal quality of a 17 and an 18-year-older who's made the scene, who's got a 41 Ford back home. You know, the chicks, the whole thing. They're not really scared, you know. We're sort of standing there. All right, come on. You know, we've seen enough movies. We know who's going to win this war. <laughs> Don't give us this jazz. Only the bad guys get killed, you know. So we know we're not bad guys. You know, it's no, no problem there. So we're all standing there, and he's walking up and down. He says, now, we are going to have a GI party. In two minutes, I want you to be out here in this company street dressed in your fatigues. And we're going to go down to that supply room. We're going to draw mops, buckets, and we are going to clean every inch of that barracks. We are going to win the prize this week at the cleanest barracks. Captain Cherry is going to be in tomorrow morning, and he's going to look at this barracks with a, with a toothbrush. And if you don't get that plaque, you ain't going into the Osho next week. Nothing you wanted more than to go into the Osho. The Osho had 500 hillbillies. All suffering from hookworm. <laughs> and they stood outside the camp just saying, Bakshish, Bakshish. That was, that was Neosho. I don't know where it is. I wonder if it's still out there, you know. Neosho, Missouri. But so there we are, you know. So sure enough, we go tearing into the barracks. You know, there's something about man hurling himself into an unpleasant task. Yeah, you got to see it, you know, to really understand it. Boom! We go in and we're all over and guys are on the floor rubbing stuff and grubbing around. Everybody's sweating. I'm up on the top floor on my knees with 20 other guys and we're rubbing down the barracks. We've got the GI brushes and the GI soap. We're washing down everything. And over at the other end of my line of brush wielders is Sherman. More popularly known as Shermy the Wormy. Shermie, with his little snotty cookie duster, is down on his knees, scrubbing like mad. He can't keep up with us. We're 17 years old, you know. We're going, let's go, you. Come on, you idiot. We're going like this, you know. And he's way back, and his poor little guy is huffing and puffing and sweating. And we finally arrive at the end, and he's about a third of the way down. We turn around. There he's coming, all by himself. And somebody says, come on, Shermie. He says, I'm hurrying, I'm hurrying. Come on, Shermie, let's go. And we start cleaning the windows. This poor little guy is down on the ground, scrubbing away. Three or four of us are finished now. And we sit back like this. You know, that, that great look of somebody who's done it. You know, he's cleaned his bit. He's through. I ain't responsible. You're sitting there that, you know, that, oh, you, you, you see these guys? That's only dangerous, believe me, that spirit, when it persists into adulthood. It's okay when a guy's 17, you know, he's got this snotty, leaning-on-the-hood quality. But boy, when you meet a 48-year-old guy like that, you know, you better go the other way, because that's bad news. Well, we're, 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 you know, it's building up, and there's a funny thing building up in the barracks. It's a kind of an agreement. Let's get after Shermie. Guys are saying things. Like, hey, Shermie, how about a cookie duster? You're going to shave it off for inspection, Jeremy? Ha <laughs> ha! Woo! You know, GI humor is great, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, it's really great. Very subtle, say. And, 
And, and Shermie is down there saying, oh, leave me alone, will you guys? Oh, what a mistake. What a mistake. He says, leave me alone, guys. And somebody says, hey, fellas, Shermie says to leave him alone. <laughs> and they come up from the ground floor, you know. They, you know, they're, they're, they're aware, you know, there's something, there's, you know, there's a hooker going on down there. And Shermie is down on the floor. He's still trying to make it, you know. And up comes this duty sergeant. Oh, boy, I'll never forget this. He walks up. You can hear him coming up the stairs. You know, this kind of thing, you know. Comes up, he stands there like this. All of us are standing around. You know, we're done. And Shermie's on the floor. He says, get out of the stick, you! Shermie says, ah, don't leave me alone, will you? He looks around and he says, fellas, he says, leave him alone. We have just gotten the okay from the authorities. <laughs> He says, leave him alone, fellas. <laughs> well, just like that, 85 guys go boom on Shermie. And they're all standing around Shermie. Come on, Shermie, do you want me to help you, Shermie? Come on, I'll help you. They grab his arm, you know, and they're pushing the mop and they're hitting him. Come on, Shermie, get some more soap, will you? Hey, Russ, get some soap, Mac. And, and Shermie is down there, and suddenly Shermie starts to cry in the middle of the army. Some guy brings it up. He says, Hey, Shermie! Hey, Sergeant, what are we going to do? Shermie's crying! And you hear way off down in the company street, What? You know, we can't believe this. You know, Somebody hollers out the window, Hey, Sergeant, Shermie's crying. Should we send him to the day room to rest? He says, don't bother him, fellas. <laughs> that is his way of saying, lay on, Macduff. And Shermie is down there groveling, and suddenly it had to happen. One of the barracks wits starts on the mustache. And apparently all the years that poor little Shermie was an insignificant little guy, five feet four inches tall and five feet five inches wide, Poor little Shermie's only, only thing of glory was this magnificent cookie duster, which he had trimmed. Beautiful little thing, you know, there it was, and it was little, little touches and just hanging out. Beautiful, like a little brush. And he was proud of this. And somebody said, Hey, Shermie, let me see your cookie duster. <laughs> hey, it tickles, fellas. Hey, Shermie, do the girls ever say anything when you kiss them? How does it feel to kiss a girl wearing a mustache? <laughs> hey, fellas, hey, come on over. Let's all line up and kiss Shermie. <laughs> well, sure enough, one lout is down in a crisis. Come on, Shermie, give me a kiss. I always wanted to kiss a girl with a mustache. But Shermie says, I'm not a girl. <laughs> He's crying. Well, it built up. It went like that until finally it had to come. Inevitably, you see, violence is like a cake of yeast. You add a little water. You set it out there in the sun. The sun comes down, and it begins to rise. It rises higher and higher and higher until finally it reaches that moment when it is full-blown, and then somebody pricks it with a little pin, and down it goes. It's completed the cycle. Somebody said, 
Hey, Shermie, how'd you like to have me shave off your mustache? Shermie looked up. His face is white. Just as white as a dishcloth. And he says, you wouldn't do that. Boom! The guys knew what to do. <laughs> Poor old Shermie has been touched on the sore tooth. And somebody says, come on, Shermie. Come on down. Let's go down to the latrine, Shermie. Let's shave off Shermie's mustache. Hey, Sergeant. Sergeant, does the captain like guys with cookie dusters? Silence. That is the most sinister sound. That is the most sinister kind of approval. Silence. That's like calling for the cop. Hey, cop, help me. Are they doing it? Hey, hey cop. Silence. He's looking the other way. The sergeant is just calmly walking down to the NCO club. And he is saying his back is stretched out like this. And on the back, you can read, Schick. <laughs> it's there in big letters of neon, you know. And they grab him, just boom, 4,000 guys. They grab him, and they got him by the feet, and he's struggling, screaming and crying. Ah! And down they go, down the company street. And the GIs start pouring out of the other barracks, thousands of them. They're hollering, hey, what are you doing, fellas? Somebody says, we're shaving a cookie duster off of Shermie. <laughs> Shermie says it hurts to kiss a girl with a cookie duster. We're helping him out. We want to help Shermie get the girls in the Osho. Let's go. And into the, into the latrine they go. Ten guys hold them down. Somebody whips out the shaving cream. Boom, boom. And his eyes, I remember, I'm standing back and I'm hollering like this. Let's give it to him. And there are those two oysters looking up, those blue eyes looking at the ceiling. He's totally paralyzed. He's saying nothing now. And so over him goes Gasser. Okay, Shermie, now you can kiss a girl and she won't say it tickles. And Shermie gets up. Little flecks of shaving cream. Everybody's standing around. Somebody says, Well, how does it feel, Shermie, now? You can feel the breeze again, can't you? It doesn't scratch, doesn't itch. Shermie says nothing. Just turns around. Walks out of the latrine. And the entire personnel of Company K stands in there. Watches him go by. So somebody says, Got any hot water? Oh, boy, it's going to be a great night in the Osho. Like this. Ah, boy, what a night. Let's get on and get the pass. And we're all lined up getting our passes. Except for Sherman. Shermie is back in the barracks somewhere trying to grow a mustache, <laughs> trying to become six feet nine inches tall, trying to lose 40 pounds, trying to become 17 year old again, trying to stop being this little round square who's scared of girls and who's scared of automobiles that honk, scared of dogs. He's down there in his upper bunk way at the end with the covers pulled up. And we all go into the bamboo inn. We sit down. There must have been 
45 of us in this terrible, rotten clip joint. You know the kind of clip joint where it says 50 girls continuous show and there's always a guy standing up, all right, let's go, let's go. The show is just beginning. We are in there, boy. Have you ever wondered who goes into those things? Sailors, soldiers, you know. And so we're sitting in there drinking the rum Collins and the whole scene. And somebody hollers up at the, at the MC, hey, dedicate this next tool to Shermie. And the whole crowd breaks up. Well, this went for about 15 minutes when in came a lieutenant. Never comes in this place. This is an enlisted man's joint. Are you aware that there are places that EM go and places that officers go, and it's an unwritten law. We have our territory, you have ours. You know, that's it. And in comes this lieutenant, first lieutenant. He walks in. He's looking around. Everybody's sitting there. What's he doing here, you know? EM, here, boy. There's a certain rugged pride in being the lowest thing on the face of the earth. <laughs> you know, there is. You know, you can't go any lower. You can't bust you. You can't do nothing. You know, there you are. You're sitting there. You're, oh, boy. And I, I think you're just sort of sitting there, and he walks in, walks through. Is you guys from Company K? This is in the middle of a nightclub. A singer is up there on the floor singing. A waiter's walking around with bottles of beer. He says, you guys from Company K? Yeah, what do you want to make of it? You know that attitude? He says, I'll tell you what I want to make of it. How many of you guys know Sherman? Yeah, Sherman the girl. You better get back to your company area, Ollie. And he walked out. And you should have felt it coming in from the street. No, there was a funny feeling. What happened? What happened? It just flowed in, you know, and everyone says, you know, what's, what's, what's this guy putting us on? You know, that, that bravado, putting us on, you know. <laughs> he ain't going to get me to go back. <laughs> and everybody's saying, yeah, it's kind of late, you know. <laughs> it is kind of late. You know, we've been there eight minutes, you know. It's kind of late. After all, ah, I've got half a beer already. Ah, it's kind of late. And so we're all in that little red bus going back to Company K on Tennessee Avenue, the 27th Signal Training Combat Battalion. We're all heading back. And, of course, everybody's talking about everything else but Sherman. We're sitting, ah, you know, Lieutenant, blah, 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 blah. We get off of the bus... And there, standing at the gate, are two majors in the MPs. Have you ever seen a major in the MPs? He's different from the guy with the little white hat. You know, that's a big scene, you know, man. Oh, and he's there. They're standing there by the gate. And, of course, there's this little place, you know, where you present your passes. So we're walking. That guy's like, he says, are you guys from Company K? You guys from Company K? Come over here. Come on, line up. Come on, line up over here. I'm from the Provost Marshal. I want to know how many of you guys know Sherman. Every last one of us did. And we want to know what happened. What's the scene? And so somebody down at the end says, We all know him, sir. 
You know, that's still that little bravado. We all know him, sir. He's in our barracks. Sherman tried to hang himself tonight, and the first sergeant caught him in the barracks. I want to know which one of you was responsible. He won't talk. I just know somebody in this barracks did it. And there we stood. Company K. 17-year-old Sharpies. All of us. Our patches. Our jazzy little hats with the Signal Corps braid. All standing there. Who caused it? He says, listen. I want to find out who caused this. And I want somebody to come down tomorrow morning to the provost marshal and give me a full story. Who is going to volunteer? And we stood. Well, ten minutes later, we are in the barracks. And way down at the end, the double-decker, you can see where they have rolled Shermie's bed up. You know how they roll it up, fella? You know what I mean? It's rolled up. The blankets are gone. There's that G.I. ticking pillow there. He's just gone out of our lives forever, somewhere. And I suspect right now, all over this country, there are at least 150 guys out of Company K who on quiet Saturday nights, grown-up men, you know, wearing their Brooks Brothers suits, their jazzy, their jazzy Indian shirts, walking through streets, occasionally see little round pasty faces with cookie dusters, with scared eyes. And they are reminded of something inside of them, something inside of each one of us. And I can remember Shermie down on the ground saying, don't hurt me. And that word, Shermie says, don't hurt them, fellas. <laughs> Oh, yes, the Army teaches you a lot of things. And in fact, if you're interested, I will tell you, do you want to hear the story of the infamous slit trench? <laughs> and what happened at 2 o'clock in the morning when a second lieutenant was on an inspection tour and three guys on guard duty, including a fellow you know fairly well, <laughs> decided that this second lieutenant should have a closer knowledge of slit trench manufacture. And this slit trench had been in use for over two months. And in fact, even at this point, there's probably a second lieutenant who knows more about the Army than Norman Mailer ever possibly could. You want to hear that story later on, gang? Or do you want to... Shh, shh. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> Not really. Do you want to hear the story? Do you want to hear the story? of the mock bombing raid on Company K <laughs> with the sacks of flour being dropped from an L-5 liaison plane at the end of a 20-mile forced march. <laughs> we have all lost 45 pounds and all of a sudden the first lieutenant hollers, Air Raid! <laughs> we've, we've marched all the way from Chicago and we're halfway to St. Louis now. 
We're in the mountains and that little airplane goes <laughs> right down the middle of the road, right at us, dropping sacks of Betty Crocker. <laughs> Let me tell you, Betty Crocker is not only kitchen tested, it does a lot of other things. You want to hear that story later, gang? Oh, by the way, I forgot to make a station break a half an hour ago, so let's make it up. What station are you listening to? AM and FM. Where? Yes. New York is a summer fist fight. And... <laughs> yeah, I love that sign that hangs over the World's Fair that says, Peace Through Understanding. I can only warn you guys, don't take it to heart, because I have found that the more you understand somebody, the more you want to kill them. <laughs> I mean, really, have you, ever, have you ever stopped to think what would happen if somebody really understood you and what you're really up to and what you really are capable of? Have you ever asked yourself if I walked into this big, fuchsia-colored, decorator, done-up office, this magnificent office, the head man, the head of personnel, and I walked in, and I'm sitting there, and I'm the personnel director. Would I hire me? I mean, honestly, would you really go that far for the company? You ever had that feeling? Yes, of course you've had that feeling. But we're living right here in New York where that feeling is not only a feeling, it's a total way of life. Men walk the streets hour after hour, figuring any second now there will be a tap on the shoulder. It's all over, Fred. Come on. And you go with them, knowing, you know. Yes, people in New York carry a load of guilt bigger than the pyramid, the Great Pyramid at Giza. And that's where we are, friends. And if you're out cruising around, we're here at the limelight, right here in the heart of Greenwich Village. Look at all these honest, reliable, sober faces here tonight. How do you like the limelight, gang? One demonstrator says, shame! Or somebody hollers over here, how long? And we will be here until midnight. And this place will stay open until 3 o'clock in the morning, attempting to get at that kernel of truth. I'll never forget one night standing in front of a window in Chicago, waiting for a streetcar. Have you ever waited for a streetcar or a bus all by yourself in a giant city? Just standing there, and in the window is a little mechanical man with a, with a finger pointing, lifting up placards saying, Make the deal now. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Thursday night, September 17th, Peyton Place comes to ABC Television. Peyton Place looks behind the calm facade of a town that could be yours, probes deep into the lives of people you've seen, you've known, you've loved. Meet Constance McKenzie, attractive, exciting, yet alone, trapped for 17 years by a terrible secret. Her daughter, Allison, on the threshold of life, about to travel the twisted paths of love and disappointment. Peyton Place, 
the town you'll want to visit again and again. Continued twice each week, every Tuesday and Thursday night. And immediately following... Big Bad John. Jimmy Dean is back at a new time with a full hour of fun, music, and guests. Informality is the key to the Jimmy Dean Show. And back with Jimmy is his delightful Muppet Hound buddy, Rolf, Peyton Place, and the Jimmy Dean Show, Thursday, September 17th. For a wide new world of entertainment, watch ABC. The biggest little gal in town is the unsinkable Molly Brown, now at Radio City Music Hall plus Spectacular Stage Show. Stay tuned for Ed Pettit reporting the news right here over WOR New York.